Welcome into a new episode of Fish Bites. My name is Danny Martinez, and yes, I am back, even if only temporarily. Thank you to Eli for filling in, man. I really enjoyed listening to the podcast, even if my wife got a little upset that I was listening to it on vacation. Uh, for those of you that know me and and you know follow me on Twitter, you know that I've been married to my wife now since December of last year, but her family's in Trinidad, my family's here, and we decided to not have our wedding until this July. And that is why I was away last week. Uh, it, was a, it was a great time. Her family came in. It was a big Trini wedding. But again, a sincere thank you to Eli for filling in, as well as all of the individuals that send in their kind words and, and the celebrations and the well wishes. I, I really do appreciate you guys. And my wife and I are both grateful for that. Now, I said that it is temporary because I'm here for today, but I will not be back on Fish Bites next week. Eli will also be filling in that week, and he has a special guest that I'm excited to listen to. Uh, I will be on my honeymoon, so I guess I'll be getting in trouble again for listening to it on my honeymoon, but I know Emily is a good sport about it. So I I'm going to be looking forward to listening to Eli and that guest. I won't spoil it quite yet, but I promise you, you're going to want to listen in. For the Earning the Stripes crew, Ian and Ethan will be taking over that until uh, August as well. Like I said, I'll be away. They're going to do a phenomenal job. So I'm excited for that. But quite frankly, I I'm just excited for today. I kind of miss being on with you guys, being on the mic, on air with you all. And I had you know, this buildup of conversation and dialogue pieces that individuals had sent in that I couldn't get to last week because of the wedding ceremony and that I don't want to put off until after the trade deadline. So we're going to get to it because quite frankly, it is perfect timing. I kept having individuals say, hey, Danny, how about you give us this update or an update, kind of a state of the union, state of the rebuild type of situation. You know, we, we talk about how things are going on a weekly basis, but what about just the big organizational plan? Sometimes I get to give my input on that, on how the organizational plan is moving along with little tidbits, but I guess I've never given an actual State of the Union update on what my opinion is for the rebuild, how we are at the major league level, when also looking at the minor league level, because I try to separate those for fish bites versus earning their stripes. So we're going to do that today. We're going to give a very quick uh, you know, state of the rebuild. And it works well because the gold standard of scouting sites and farm system rankings and prospect rankings and all of that good stuff, um, you know, they, they updated it this week. Fangraphs updated their rankings. Baseball America updated their rankings. So it was a good time to have this conversation. The second dialogue piece that we're going to get to is the trade deadline. Now, Eli did an amazing job of discussing this last week. A lot of really good feedback from that as well. He's, he's coming from my podcast, ladies and gentlemen. But individuals did want to know what my opinion is on it. So I'm going to give a very brief five-minute uh, review of what I think is going to happen at the trade deadline and what I can envision seeing. I'll give you estimates of who I think is on the move and what they should be targeting. We're going to wrap up the dialogue section with uh, kind of the third and final chapter of the conversation we've had over the last few weeks while I've been on air, which is, you know, the, the rebuild on pace or even a little ahead of pace. We have seen what pieces are, are here and what pieces we still need to fill in. We've had the conversation the last time that I was on air of, you know, when does win and, wins and loss really begin to matter again? Is it 2020? Is it 2021? And, and I found out to my surprise that I am a little bit more impatient than you guys out there. All of y'all that voted over 600 or something votes, 
a majority said 2021 and and I disagreed. I said 2020 is the year that uh, wins and losses just start mattering again. And that conversation is going to be just a wrap up on that. If it is next year that wins and losses matter, what is the standard? We're going to talk about that. How many wins? What should we be expecting? I posed that question on Twitter this week, and I got a lot of feedback on it, a lot of responses. So I want to share some of that feedback, and I want to give you my own opinion as well. Finally, we're, of course, going to wrap up with Pitching Performance of the Week and Hitters of the Week. If you've been following, you know that that's what we do here. But let's going to start off with the good and juicy stuff. So let's talk about that dialogue piece. Let's talk about the state of the rebuild. No one is going to be surprised to know that, hey, the Marlins are in a rebuild. It is year two of that rebuild. Bruce Sherman came in. He hired, or rather, with Derek Jeter. He is the baseball operations uh, individual. That's who we talk about. That's why Derek Jeter is the trigger word, is the lightning post of the media and of the fans, whether they agree or they disagree. Now, whether you agree or you disagree, the Marlins made the tough decision, the unpopular decisions, and they made a rebuild. In 2017, they got a lot of initial reaction to the rebuild. Some of those trades look better right now, like the Ozuna trade, uh, the D. Gordon trade, even the Stanton trade, than they did at the moment that it happened. Some of the trades will never look good in the eyes of individuals, mostly the Christian Yelich trade, because if we're being honest, he goes off, and I don't care about ballpark factors. I'm a believer that ballpark factors and division factors are a reason that he became the MVP, but no one really cares about that. At the end of the day, he still went out and became the MVP, and the first tangible prospect that the Marlins could present to their fan base and to the national media was Lewis Brinson from that trade, and we know how that turned out. So most individuals only remember Lewis Brinson being demoted or not performing up to par and Christian Yelich winning the MVP. I can't blame a casual fan or even a fan that feels that they're not casual for thinking that that will forever be a bad trade. Most fans do not care that Isan Diaz is a Futures Game representative, a minor league baseball all-star on track to you know debut this year and is on pace for like 40 home runs in the minors. No, They don't usually don't care about that. No, no fan typically cares that Monte Harrison, prior to his injury, was also a minor league baseball all-star, also a futures game representative, and was on track to debut the year. They don't, they don't care. Jordan Yamamoto, even at the major league level, the way that he's been performing in his rookie season, prior to getting to this buzzsaw of the Dodgers lineup, most people still don't care. Oh, congratulations, you got one piece out of that. That trade is always going to be difficult to talk about. But the point stands that the trades have been dynamic and that some trades look better now than they did a year and a half ago. And some trades still look just as bad as they did a year and a half ago. We cannot give an analysis on that trade until all the prospects are up, until the Marlins core is playing together, until we see the rest of Stanton and Yelich and, and how they have done. So I'm not here to say that. I'm simply here to discuss the state of the rebuild. Those things are wait and see. So I'm going to start off with what's not wait and see. What is not wait and see is the current Marlins major league level performance. And there is why a lot of individuals have told me that they believe the uh, rebuild is advanced or excelled or above pace. Because at the major league level, what do you have? Well, you have pitching brought in through the rebuild, whether it was signed like you know Trevor Richards or traded for before or Sandy Alcantara, who's now who, who's selected as an all-star. Whatever the case is, you have a starting staff that as we speak right now is ranked seventh in starting ERA. 
in all of baseball. You've heard me say that stat before. It hasn't changed since I said it. You've heard other people say it, even national media is starting to pick up on that. The Marlins have good pitching. The Marlins have very good pitching. And the Marlins have very good young pitching at the major league level. Nothing to wait and see there. If anything, they're only going to get better. Then on the offensive side, the collective unit is not good, to put it nicely. But you have, if you were to ask me for my opinion, three pieces that I would be very comfortable putting a heavy sum of money on and estimating and betting, saying that they are going to be here the next time that the Marlins field a 500 or better ball club or a competitive ball club. You know, Brian Anderson is one of the safest young players in all of baseball. He is never going to give you likely, okay, this seven win season or this superstar elite level season, but he is elite defensively at third. He gets on base, even though he's been more aggressive this year. He is someone who can hit you 20 plus homers. Likely, I mean, he could almost get to it this year, but if not, then definitely next year. Because remember, he started off very slow this year. He's already a two win player for you, and he could be on pace to be even better. He is someone who is going to be a part of the Miami Marlins future. Struggled last time out. That is a pass, Machado, and down the line. Yachty around third. Brian Anderson is the hero today. The Marlins with a walk-off win. And you know what? This is a rewarding day for Brian Anderson. I'll tell you, the day started the way it ended last night with some frustrating at-bats. He stayed with it, got himself a breaking ball, and ends up being today's hero. If... If there was one person that I would say you should extend, Derek Jeter. Oh, I know you listen to this. You should extend Brian Anderson. Bring him to the table right now. Give him a five-year deal. Give him a six-year deal. Buy out his entire prime. He's only 26 years of age. Prime in baseball is around 27, 28. Buy out all of his prime years. Extend the man because he's someone who always gives you a good at bat. He's someone who gives you elite defense at third. He's already one of the better players on this team, and he's someone that's going to be here. Garrett Cooper has decided to knock down the door in the conversation of, hey, who's our offensive pieces? Me. Garrett Cooper has gone out and has just decided to continue hitting, has decided to make it completely irrelevant whether you want to replace me at first or in the outfield because I could play both positions. He's not going to stop you from going out and getting a Jose Abreu, but he has now entered himself as, a, as, an, as an older, I guess we could say, older prospect. In the conversation of a future core piece for the Miami Marlins, I'm a big Garrett Cooper fan. I really am. I got I got laughed at. Even my own peers roll their eyes when I say that. But when that trade was made, I was incredibly excited for it. The trade that brought him and Caleb Smith over for Michael King, who's a prospect. And when he's made the opening day rosters, now he's healthy. He's shown and he started to validate the fact that I was excited about that. So Garrett Cooper is someone who, along with Brian Anderson, is likely going to stay here for the long run. And long run really for me means three, five years. Baseball, you know, turnover is three to five years in baseball. Someone who can be an answer at first, or if they go after, they go after uh, Jose Abreu, or, you know, no one wants to hear this, but an Anthony Rizzo, Ethan would just destroy me if you heard me say that. Later on, you just move him over to right field, and then you're okay there. The third piece, you know who I'm going to say is George Alfaro. George Alfaro, uh, George Offerill is just, he's just, he is the future at catcher. We know this, but he's just an incredible steal. Look, if you go look at his numbers and JT Ramuto, make no mistake about it. As we sit here right now, JT Ramuto is the, is the superior catcher 
Okay, there's no mistakes about that. George Alfaro, however, is younger, hits for just as much power. If he gets his strikeout rate even a little bit lower, you're talking about a top five catcher in baseball. So you traded a top one or two catcher in baseball for Sixto Sanchez, who we're going to talk about in a second, and for one of the top catchers, young catchers in baseball. There are some individuals that don't think George Alfaro is part of the future here, and, and I just disagree. My answer is not gold, right? It could happen. George Alfaro might not be the future, but for me, he absolutely is. Over the next five years, I have no doubt that the next time the Marlins are starting a playoff game, he's the first catcher. He's the one that's going to catch that ball from whoever's starting it. So prospects are wait and see. That's why we start off with the major league level. When you talk about the state of the rebuild, start off with the major league level. You have Pablo Lopez. You have Sandy Alcantara. You have Trevor Richards and Caleb Smith, whether they move to the pen or they get traded. We could talk about that in a second. You have Jordan Yamamoto, you have Zach Gallen, you have George Alfaro and Brian Anderson and Garrett Cooper. All individuals which I believe are core pieces moving forward, whether they get traded as assets or not. Now, one player that I did not mention there, but I wrote in my last article for Fish Stripes was Harold Ramirez. Hitting Harold. How could I not mention hitting Harold? I love Harold Ramirez. I really do. I, I love watching him play. I, I, I cheer on for him you know, more than almost any player on the team. I don't know why. I just like him. I like the guy, and I think he is good at what he does. He's good bat to ball. He's actually top 10% in sprint speed, which might come as a surprise to many of you. But in this organization, if we're talking about playoff competitive teams, I really do believe Harold ends up being the best fourth outfielder in baseball, but not a starter. I think you look at individuals like Monte Harrison and Victor Victor Mesa, who's performed much better as of late over the last month or so, actually one of the best offensive productions in our minor league system over the last month. Many of y'all gave up way too quickly on Mesa. Go check his numbers. Same with Connor Scott, by the way. Great last month that people just gave up on. You have a J.J. Bladé now. You have a Cameron Meisner. You, you have so much talent in the outfield and so much high ceilings, which Harold Ramirez might not have the highest seeing, ceiling, if we're being honest. You have too much talent out there. I think that if I'm just being fully and just blunt and honest and genuine with you, I think Harold Ramirez is a part of this core, but not as a starter. And yet, look at all the offensive pieces and all of the pitching pieces that you have already seen and you've already found, at least at the basic level, in just a year and a half or two years of rebuild. So the major league system is good. Collectively, I understand the win-loss is awful. They're on pace to be a near 100-loss team. I understand all of that. But then you need to understand it's also year two of a rebuild. And then we're not here for wins and losses. We're here for development, and the development is clear. But you know what's not good? Because it's great. The minor league system is great. The minor league system is something that I have been praising over the last year. I have been called a homer. I have been told to take off my rose-colored glasses. I have been said, told that I am on payroll for the Marlins and Jeter because I have continued to say that after this draft, the Miami Marlins farm system would be top 10. Well, if you're one of those people, I want you to look up fangraphs.com. And I want you to look up baseballamerica.com and I want you to find their editor's email and send them emails telling them that they're homers and that they're rose-colored glasses because the gold standard of scouting decided to update their rankings this week. And they think that the Marlins farm system is great too. Fangraphs ranked the Miami Marlins seventh in all of baseball with five 
of their prospects on their top prospects board. Seven in all of baseball, from rookie ball to AAA to young prospects and you know young age players at the at the major league system. Seventh in all of baseball. The following five are on Fan, Fangraphs top prospects rankings: Sixto Sanchez, JJ Bleday, Isan Diaz, Monte Harrison, and Zach Gallen. This isn't Danny Martinez telling you that they're number seven in all of baseball. This is Fangraphs, who's been notoriously rough on the Marlins, telling you that they have the seventh best farm system in all of baseball two years into a rebuild with a lot of young pieces like Lewis Brinson, who I understand is having his difficulties, like George Alfaro, who was not having difficulties, like Sandy Alcantara, who was not having difficulties, have already graduated from the system. And they are still a seventh best farm system in baseball. Now, there are some individuals that don't like fan graphs. I, I will always say it. I'm on, I'm on record on air saying this. Fan graphs, Baseball America, 2080 Baseball. That's who I use. That's who I put my faith into when we're talking about scouting. But fan graphs is very analytically driven. Some individuals don't appreciate that. That's okay. You know who's not as analytically driven and who has on-field scouts that goes and scouts these players? Baseball America. Baseball America has the Miami Marlins farm system ranked 13th pre-draft. That means without J.J. Blade, who is a top 100 prospect in their, in their new rankings, without Cameron Meisner, without Evan Fitterer, without Nassim Nunez, without any of these amazing players that they're very high on as a draft overall. Their updated top 100, the Marlins have five top 100 prospects. Sixto Sanchez, J.J. Blade, Zach Gallen, Isan Diaz, and Edward Cabrera glory and hallelujah that someone outside of Miami media and us, ourselves here at Fish Bites and earning their stripes and fish stripes is talking about Edward Cabrera because he deserves it. If you have gone on to any of the ETS recordings, you know that myself, Ian Smith, and Ethan Badowski talk about Edward Eddie Cabrera at nauseum because he deserves it. Baseball America has caught on and has added him to the top 100 prospect list. If you're asking yourself, wow, five prospects on the list. That seems like a lot. Ding, ding, you are correct. Only three teams have more prospects on the top 100 list for Baseball America than Miami Marlins. Only three teams have more. The Tampa Bay Rays, which are ridiculous, they have nine. But we know what the Rays do. We know who the Rays are. There should really be no surprise that they have this many on their list. San Diego Padres, also one of the deepest farm systems in baseball, has seven and the Atlanta Braves, the powerful Atlanta Braves, with all of the pitching they have, only have one more than the Marlins at six. After that, your Miami Marlins, two years after a rebuild has been completed or started, and without graduations from Sandy Alcantara and Pablo Lopez and Luis Brinson, soon to be, you know, Jordan Yamamoto and Zach, this is incredibly impressive for two years down the line. So when you're asking me to talk about the status and the state of the union, per se, the state of the Marlins, the state of this rebuild, when at the major league level, you are ahead of schedule because of the pitching that you have. And in the minor league level, you have a top seven system, top 10 system, where every single night, and this isn't my words, these are Baseball America speaking, and the editors and the writers which for what it's worth, if you have social media, I always say, go do that. Do not just follow Fish Stripes and myself and, and my peers. Follow Baseball America editors. Follow Fangraphs editors because you'll get a flavor of what they're thinking. Th they can't stop talking about the fact that the Marlins pitching is the way that it is. 
they can't stop talking about the fact that people might have judged this rebuild too quickly. The fact that even the worst trade of the rebuild, which almost anyone would say is the Christian Yelich trade, is starting to bear fruit in a Jordan Yamamoto, in an Isan Diaz, in a Monte Harrison. And that you likely still cannot give up on a 25-year-old Lewis Brinson. So if you're asking me for the State of the Union, guys, it's good. If you're asking me for an update, it's good. The only thing that would make it better is if the business side had been able to already figure out a new TV contract. But there's no rush on that. It ends next year anyway, so you could go until next year and then get it done. And a new uh, naming rights for the, for the park. If those two things, and we're, we're shooting to have someone on from the business side on our show soon. If those two things had been resolved, oh man, the State of the Union is bliss. But it hasn't. So the State of the Union is still great. You have a core at the major league level. You're building that core with pitching and with hitting. You're about to have a lot of money that you could spend. Bruce Sherman has said multiple times he will spend. Let's see if his words line up with his actions. 2020 doesn't have to be the year you spend, but by 2021, 2022, you likely have to start spending. This next offseason, the Marlins only have $22 million or so locked up in, in payroll. After that, they have arbitration. Let's say that arbitration gets them to about $50 million. After that, they have about $30 million to get to even a respectable payroll of $80, $85 million, even more if they want to go to $100 million. If they don't spend, you know, the players' union and the other fellow owners that are tired of sharing revenue with low payroll teams are likely going to come knocking on Little Havana's door, which means they're going to spend. I don't know if it's going to be Jose Abreu or Yasiel Puig or Nick Castellanos or something to that extent, but they're going to spend this year, and then spend probably much bigger 2021 and 2022 when they have the rest of the finances in place. But when you're talking about that, added to the great farm system, with only one rebuilding draft, by the way, because this is the only year thus far that they've had a draft off of a rebuilding year. The previous draft, last year's draft, came off of a competitive, quote-unquote, year of the 2017 when the Marlins won 70-something games. The, the, the state is good. The state is good, and it's only going to get better. Now, for the second dialogue piece, one of the places where it can get better is with the trade deadline. Like I mentioned, I'm not going to go too much into this, okay? Eli did a fantastic job of covering almost all of the players that I would have discussed anyway, if not more. He discussed the value. He discussed why it might work, why it might not work. So I'm just going to give you my quick rundown of what I think coming into this trade deadline. Uh, number one, there's no objective sources here or anything I could point to for why I feel like this, but I almost feel like it's an all or nothing kind of year. You know, that makes very little sense. The Marlins don't have to trade all of their assets right now. And if they don't, they could trade one or two, which means that it's not nothing type of a year. But for whatever reason, my gut just tells me that it's all or nothing that we're going to go into this deadline thinking that we're going to get everyone gone and then nothing will happen. But what would I do if I was there? If I was GM Danny, what would I do? Well, for me, it's very simple. I have three players that are gone. They're just gone. I try to maximize their value, but I will take anything that I can, even if it's just IFA pool money. Number one is Starlin Castro. Starlin Castro is not going to be here next year. Starlin Castro has had a very good last month, which is good for his trade value. I don't think that there is any team that's going to go crazy. Scouts do not get fooled by two weeks of excellent play. But it's nice that he's been playing better. 
If there is anything for him, I take the deal. July 31st comes. Remember, there's the first year that there is a hard deadline. July 31st, no deals made after that. I take anything for Starling Castro. It opens up second base. You bring Isan Diaz up. I vented a lot on the Isan Diaz situation in the last time that I recorded ETS. So you can go listen to that. But Isan Diaz needs to be up here by August 1st or August 3rd when they start that, that series against the Rays. Starling Castro gone. Neil Walker gone. Neil Walker was one of the most valuable players for the Marlins offense prior to his injury. He's now back. Okay, He's doing okay. And he adds value because he adds defensive versatility and he adds a good bat. Neil Walker is someone who, if you get anything for low-tier prospect, you want bats, of course, just like the draft, bats, 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 or international free agency pool money, you accept, you send it in, and you let him and you let Castro go and try to get a ring for themselves. Let them play playoff baseball. Let them enjoy themselves. It's what they deserve, especially Starling Castro. He seems like he's always in a rebuilding team. Gone. Sergio Romo. Gone. Sergio Romo has been excellent for the Marlins. A leader in the clubhouse and a leader on the field. He's, I believe, 16 for 17 in save opportunities or something to that extent. He's going to have value attached to his name. He has been in the playoffs before. He has closed out World Series games. He is a leader and he's still effective when he's on the mound. Gone. Players that I would listen to. Hold on to your pants here because now we're going to start to upset some local Miami media. If someone calls you for any of the bullpen pieces currently on the Miami Marlins, you pick up the phone and you have the conversation. I don't care how young they are. I don't care how old they are. Bullpen pieces are expendable, especially when you have 20 plus arms in the, in the pipeline that you're trying to uh, develop as starting pitchers, but you can develop them as relief pitchers. Good example of that is George Guzman. You make the deal if someone wants a Tyron Guerrero. If Drew Steckenrider was healthy, obviously that'd be a little different. And Adam Conley, regardless of value concerns, Austin Bryce, again with the injury, but still you get the point. They call, you pick it up. But here's where people really get upset. Caleb Smith and Trevor Richards. Okay, let me just preface this by saying that I will not be as upset as some of my peers if they are still here. I, I won't. I don't I don't believe in the whole concept that they're exactly like an Adam Conley or a Kyle Barraclough who will regress. Okay, I understand Caleb Smith is a little older, but he doesn't depend on his fastball velocity. So I'm not worried about his regression as much as I would be about a Conley or a Kyle Barraclough from last year. If he is still here August 1st, I am a-okay with that. But I'm also not cool with the mentality of, hey, you don't listen at all on Caleb Smith because he was brought in here as part of the rebuild and he has to be here forever in a year. No. I understand the talent, I understand the production thus far, and I understand the years of control. But guess who also understands that? Opposing GMs who are willing to give you bats and bats and bats to get him. If you get a value trade for either of those two pitchers, you take it. Trevor Richards is one of he's like one of my favorites, but I still envision him in the bullpen when this team is competitive because that changeup fastball combo would be deadly coming out of the pen. You're going to tell me you're not going to listen on a Trevor Richards who might be kicked out of his rotation in this time next year? Absolutely. Caleb Smith likely has a harder time getting kicked out of this rotation. I get it. He's older. I get it. He has talent. I get it. I get all of it. 
I even get the aesthetics and the optics of not wanting to trade this young pitching who's doing so well now because then the casual fan will think it's just the same thing over and over again. Oh, here comes another trade from another successful player. I get all of that. What I don't get are the individuals that say that trading one of these pitchers is all of a sudden going to make pitching a weakness for the Marlins organization. Nope. Because one pitcher is not going to change the fact that you still have 15-plus starting pitching candidates. And not all of them will succeed. I understand. Maybe five of them will. But that's still added to Pablo Lopez, who's, I think, personally the best pitcher at the major league level, although he's hurt right now, and a Sandy Alcantara, and a Zach Gallen, and a Jordan Yamamoto. You know, you're not going to create a weakness if you trade one of these guys. You have to do it for the right value. You have to do it for the right deal. You have to do it for the position player unless there's a pitching prospect coming back that you value much higher than than the bat. But to not even consider it would be foolish and, in my opinion, a ludicrous way of running this trade deadline. So it's something that you consider. Will the Marlins have a big splash at this trade deadline? No, right? Will the Marlins you know, overhaul their entire system? No, and they don't have to. They're already top 10 in baseball. But if you choose to effectively use your assets, you can continue adding to the future. You can continue adding to this top 10 farm system in baseball. And you will not be creating a weakness by doing it. Now, something very interesting to consider at this deadline is some of the differences from previous years. Yes, now they have the hard trade deadline. So no deals after July 31st. But also the National League is an incredibly interesting uh, situation right now because everyone not named the Miami Marlins are in a playoff contention, which means that the demand is going to be very high for players like pitchers and relief pitchers, but the supply is going to be very low because everyone's holding on to their assets. The Giants are a very good example of that. Regardless of whether I rather have Caleb Smith or Madison Bumgarner, there's something to be said about Madison Bumgarner. If he is on the market, Caleb Smith value goes down. The same with Will Smith from the Giants. If he's on the market, Sergio Romo's value goes down. But if all of a sudden the Giants say, nope, we're going for it because you know what? We have been deadly this last month. We're like two games behind the wild card and we're the San Francisco Giants. And they hold on to Mad Bum and they hold on to Smith. All of a sudden you could get a little bit Will Smith, rather, you get a little bit more value from a Caleb Smith or from a Will Smith, uh, rather from a Sergio Romo trade. All of a sudden, that demand with the Marlins having the supply is going to make that value go up. So that's another interesting wrinkle to think of. At the end of the day, when it comes to me, I, I gave you my prediction. Castro, Walker, and Romo gone. I think they listen on all the bullpen arms. I think they listen on Smith, and I think they listen on Richards. I would be surprised if either of them are traded, but if they are, good news. It's likely for bats, and it's likely to continue solidifying your farm system, which is already top 10. Let's get to that third piece that I wanted to talk about. I told you that this third piece was somewhat like the final chapter of the ongoing conversation we've had of the Marlins system being on, you know, the Marlins rebuild being on pace or ahead of pace, the Marlins 
you know, when do we care about wins and losses? I told you that I was a little bit more impatient than all of you that voted. You guys voted 2021 majority. I care 2020. So this conversation is for those that care about 2020. Now, if you voted 2021, don't log off. All right. You know, you still have to live through 2020 to get to 2021. But the question is, if you care about wins and losses in 2020, what is the standard? I sent out this conversation piece on Twitter, as I typically do, to get feedback before I do recordings. And a lot of people answered back. What I said was, uh, you know, the Marlins were 10 and 31. And since 10 and 31, they've been around a 500 ball club. Now, they just ran into the buzzsaw of the National League and all of baseball and Los Angeles Dodgers. But for a second, let's have some mercy and grace. Because the Miami Marlins are a rebuilding team and the Los Angeles Dodgers are one of the best teams of this decade, the way that they're playing right now not of this year, of this decade. So let's give some mercy and grace to them likely getting swept. If you take that away, number one, they're coming off a nice series against the Padres, but you know we're not too worried about that. If you take the Dodgers series away, they're playing 500 ball since their 10 and 31 start. So I asked the question, is that the standard for 2020? If you care about wins and losses in 2020, right? If you're impatient like I am, there's a lot of people, 60-something percent of individuals said, no, 2021 is what I care about. But if you care about 2020's 500 baseball, the standard for wins and loss, and, and I laugh, and let me tell you why I laugh. Because you're telling us something. If that's what you think, 500 is a standard. You're telling us something so significant without even realizing that you're telling us. You are telling us that you have more faith in year three of this latest rebuild than you did in the previous precious core ever, because that previous core never got to 500. Let me make something very clear here, because I, I've been told that I'm too hard on the previous core. Okay. While I did not like the previous core as much as I have other eras of baseball, and it's the truth, outside of Jose Fernandez and Marcelo Zuna, I, I, I just as a fan, I did not feel connected to the previous core. Something about it. I don't know. I, I'm sure that they're all really nice guys. They were fun core. They had great individual performances, but they didn't get me. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't grasp a hold of me like the 2008-2009 teams did. Uh, you know, like the previous years of Luis Castillo and Alex Gonzalez, Mike Lowell. Later on, George Cantu, even Mike Jacobs, Dan Ugla, those, those teams, those cores got me. I, I, I never felt like that with the previous core. So maybe when I say I'm too hard on them or you guys say I'm too hard on them, maybe it comes from that. That could be the truth. But I never really enjoyed that core as much as I did other previous ones. But that's not the reason that I laugh at some people that already have more of an expectation with this core than that previous core ever excelled. Guys, knock, knock. The previous core averaged 75 wins together. Stanton and Yelich and Gordon and Bohr and Ozuna. And even when Fernandez was here, prior to the tragedy, they averaged 75 wins together. They never got to a playoff. They never got to 500. So if in 2020, you already have the expectation of 500, congratulations. But please, let's stop talking about the previous core then. Because then you expect this team third year of the rebuild to do better than two MVPs, right? Because that's what we always say. And an ace in Jose Fernandez and Marcelo Zuna and D. Gordon, who never got to 79 wins, who never got to 81 wins. So I'm okay with that. I just laugh because you're, you're not, most likely not realizing what you're saying, which is that you already have more faith in this team than you did the previous. 
But the question is, okay, is that the standard? Most of the individuals said 500 baseball. You know, I, I don't disagree necessarily. I, I think my my pace or my expectation would be 75 to 80 wins. That would be my standard for next year. I told you I care about wins and losses. That's what I would be hoping for, 75 to 80 wins. I don't need 500 to feel good about next year's ball club. Can they get to 500? Absolutely. They've been playing 500 baseball since their horrible start. But remember, that horrible start came on the backs of veterans who aren't going to be here and a part of the rotation that isn't going to be here either. Because I think Jose Urania comes back and he's in the bullpen. I eventually think the next competitive team, Trevor Richards, is in the bullpen. So maybe Caleb Smith, Pablo Lopez, and Sandy are the three from opening day rotation that are still here. Now with Zach Gallen and Jordan Yamamoto and the influx of talent and pitching talent on the mound in the minor league system. Basically, what I'm saying is 10 and 31 didn't come from players of the future. It came from players of the past. When the players of the future came up, Garrett Cooper, Harold Ramirez, even if it's a fourth outfielder, the pitching staff got solidified with the baby-faced aces. Suddenly, Brian Anderson and George Alfaro stabilized because they were having awful luck in the beginning, and their play had to return from a regression that wasn't what kind of player they were to where they are now. Now they're playing around their career slash lines. What we would expect from them. They're not overperforming right now. They're playing at what we would expect. Suddenly now this team is 500. Oh, and you don't have Isan Diaz yet or Monte Harrison or Victor Victor Mesa or Sixto Sanchez or Edward Cabrera or in two years, JJ Bladet. You don't have all of these players that now make up a top seven farm system, top 10 farm system. So starting opening day next year, if now the future is up, can you expect 500? Absolutely. And I'm okay with that standard. I think, like I said, mine would be 75-80. This year I had 70-75. to 75. But I am okay with those that would expect a 500-ball club. And quite frankly, I'm confident that they could be close to that. I'm confident they could be a 75-plus win team. I really am. Because unless all of the pitchers are going to regress, oh, and by the way, all of the reinforcements that they have in the minor leagues, they're not going to be much worse than they have been over the last 55 games, 50-plus games they're just not because they're going to be better development happens with young pitchers and you're going to add ML minor league baseball all-stars top prospects top 100 prospects so i don't think that that's an issue and for what it's worth if you have that standard and if they reach it then the marlins are well above schedule of the astros of the white Sox, even of the padres that tends to happen when you have a lot of outgoing talent, no doubt about it. The Marlins had a lot of outgoing talent, but for the most case, and even if we're still in wait and see for some of the deals, it seems like they were able to at least get average deals and in some cases maximize that talent so that this is an advanced and excelled rebuild rather than one that takes five plus years. Because once again, as we sit here right now, if you're listening in your car, it is year two of the rebuild. The Marlins already have a top 10 starting staff in the major league level, a top 10 farm system in baseball, and they're going to have a top five pick next year. That is an advanced, excelled, quick-paced, ahead-of-schedule, state-of-the-Marlins rebuild. And it's a reason that people should be excited for next year. All right. 
We have 10, 15 more minutes. I want to get to our pitching performance of the week as well as our hitter of the week. Pitching performance of the week comes down to three performances this week, which are actually all very similar, at least when we look at their stat line. Caleb Smith against the Padres went five innings pitched, only allowed two earned runs, seven strikeouts, and only two walks. Early on, he was not as consistent. They got to him early on, and then he just settled down, and he looked like the Dr. K of before, before his injury. Jordan Yamamoto against the Padres, same club. Five innings pitched, two earned runs, four strikeouts to two walks. You know, Yams continues to get himself into trouble and then out of trouble, and he continues to minimize the damage. Now, again, might be a different story today against the Dodgers. They have a buzzsaw. I don't like the matchup for him. I don't like the matchup for him at all. Maybe he proves me wrong, but thus far, he has had clean lines, and he has been getting out of trouble when he needs to. Third is Zach Gallen. Zach Gallen goes to Dodger Stadium. This is the most impressive one for me, by the way. I know I give you guys the options, and then you choose, and you tell me who the pitching performance is of the week, but by golly, like Zach Gallen is my choice this week because he goes to Dodger Stadium against the most ridiculous lineup in baseball as we speak. Don't talk to me about the Yankees. It's the Dodgers. 5.1 innings pitch, only one run allowed, five strikeouts to four walks. Zach Allen would be my selection, but I'm going to point out something here that's interesting. I had this conversation with another writer. Let me bring it on to the airwaves. You know, you talk about uh, a casual fan or just any fan, even a good Marlins fan, and you ask him to talk about Jordan Yamamoto and then Zach Allen. And a very interesting thing happens because, see, Jordan Yamamoto has a very pretty stat line so far this year. He gets in trouble, but he gets out of it very easily. And he has a lot nicer stat lines. If you are just a box score guy, it's not even a conversation who's been better. Jordan Yamamoto versus uh, versus Zach Gallen. You're going to choose Yamamoto every single time. Because then you look at Zach Gallen, he's allowed three runs and then two runs and then three runs. And, and, and it doesn't look as pretty. But tell me, for those of you that use your eyes, doesn't Zach Gallen look like he's just going to stick? One out to Verdugo, who flew out his first time. He swings and misses there. A strikeout for Gallon. That is his second of the night, two away in the third. He can handle both sides of the plate. Well, that's where Alfaro set up. That one was up and out of the zone, but Bellinger chased. Third strikeout for Gallon the following year. Swings and misses. That's the fourth strikeout for Gallon, second this inning. Swing and a miss and a huge strikeout of Bellinger for out number one in the sixth. This fastball atop the strike zone at 90 miles an hour. Bellinger not catching up to it. Doesn't his stuff look like it's just going to stick? Like he's just going to continue to get better. And listen, this is not a knock on Yamamoto at all. I think they are both uh, individuals that could be rotation fixtures moving forward. I think that they both have very nice ceilings and they have safe floors. This is not a knock on him, but it's a point to why seeing with your eyes is different than looking at a box score. Seeing it in person is different than looking through the TV. Zach Gallen has been like the Brian Anderson of, of pitching right now. He's gotten a lot of tough luck. He's gotten a lot of, like we saw a few nights ago, errors behind him and plays against the shift. So his box score doesn't look as pretty, but his stuff plays, and it plays up. On the other side, Jordan Yamamoto is unpredictable. Jordan Yamamoto is, uh, I rather his arsenal is unpredictable, not his performance. His arsenal is unpredictable. He's hard to pick the ball up on. His velocity looks so much uh, faster than it is because of all the pitches that he has back there. 
He keeps hitters off timing. This is really not a knock on him, but just something to point out. If you ask me who has more success moving forward, if I'm forced to pick one, it's probably the guy with the uglier box scores right now. It would be Zach Gallen. And this week, what he did at Dodger Stadium is a shame it ended the way it did. Should have ended much better than the way it did, but that's not on him. He would be my choice. On the offensive side, you have two guys to really look at for hitter of the week. Both of them are part of that future core that I was talking about earlier. George Alfaro is hitting 286, 313, 357 with four hits, a double and a walk, and seven Ks over the last week. Listen, this stat line, if you threw in a home run in there, which for what it's worth, he missed a grand slam over the weekend by like one foot. If you throw in a home run in there, that's basically George Alfaro for the rest of his career. 280s, 320s, 360s or 400 slugging, and then four, you know, a bunch of hits, doubles, and homers, and a bunch of strikeouts. That's what it is. That's the kind of hitter that he is. But he's good. He's good. And I'm not even sure if I mentioned it earlier, uh, but, you know, when you talk about the conversation with Riomoto and Alfaro, that trade looks better every single day. Go compare the numbers. The offensive number is not much different. Now, is JT Ramuto right now still the superior athlete and the superior defensive catcher and the superior player? Absolutely. He's also older. He also has less years of control. That trade is looking like an absolute gem because of the way that Alfaro has been playing. And the reality is that he will only continue to develop and handle the pitching staff better. He's a top 10 catcher, arguably right now in baseball already. And look at his age and look at his years of control. The other option for this week is Garrett Cooper. Of course, it's Garrett Cooper. 364 on base 48% of the time, slugging well over 700, eight hits over the last seven games, two homers, two doubles, nine Ks, but has also walked five times. I said it before. I will say it again. Garrett Cooper has officially introduced himself as a fixture in this franchise. He has not signed the contract and finalized the agreement yet because, of course, we need to see it for a longer time and we need to see what they do. But with his versatility out in the outfield as well, he's going to be here. And every single week, I don't, I don't anticipate it or want it to happen, but I'm just waiting for the day that he really regresses really hard. And then we can talk again. Okay, well, maybe it was a fluke. You know, the, the two weeks, oh, those four weeks, oh, those six weeks, oh, those eight weeks were a fluke. It doesn't happen. He keeps hitting. He keeps getting on base. He keeps taking his walks. And he has a solid defensive glove at first base. He sends one deep to left center field. That's gone. A solo homer for Garrett Cooper, his 11th. If I had to choose this week, come on, it's Garrett Cooper, right? When you hit 364, 481, 727 with eight hits, yeah, two homers, you're, you're going to get hitter of the week. I think that you guys would agree with me. But his conversation piece is just so interesting. Because he opens up so many options for you moving forward. He opens up so many uh, uh, op opportunities where you can, like I said, get a Jose Abreu or someone else that you want to add to first base and keep him in the lineup and then put him over at right field. It is an exciting thing that he has added himself to what I thought was just going to be a conversation all year about Brian Anderson and George Alfaro. And, and Garrett Cooper has absolutely hijacked that conversation and has continued to make the point that even in a losing, rebuilding season of 100 losses, the MLB status is actually pretty good because the players that we need to play well are playing well. And that if we're not okay with that being pretty good, then we look at the farm system that's great.
And if we're not okay with the fact that the farm system is great, we look one year in advance where many of you already want a 500 season, which means that they would have already surpassed the win total of the previous core. And that's without even talking about the financials, the financials of, of adding money from the naming rights and adding money from the TV contract. And the question, will Bruce Sherman's actions match up with his words of spending? Will they be able to effectively do deals at the trade deadline? Will they be able to take assets from the mound and use them in trades for future pieces? There are questions. There's no doubt about it. But when you look at the state of the Marlins to finish up with the way that we started, it's good. It's a good time to get into this. It's a good time to be a fan. It's a good time to say I was there in 2019, the second year of the rebuild, before it became easy to root for the Marlins. That's going to be it for me today. I want to thank again, Eli, for coming out last week and doing that amazing uh, recording. Like I said in the beginning, uh, I will not be here next week because I will be in my honeymoon. But Eli will be back and he will be bringing a special guest with him. I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm telling you, you're going to want to find it in your app, download that episode and listen to it because I'm honestly quite jealous that the guy he's bringing in, you know, is here when Eli's coming in. Come on. I would have loved to have been able to discuss that with him. Like I mentioned before, I want to bring in a business partner of the Marlins and discuss a little bit of the business. So look out for that coming. As always, I want you to continue sending me emails. If there's one thing I'm proud of with this podcast, listen, the numbers are great, but I'm not even proud about the about the numbers. You know, it, it's not it's not the guests. It's it's not anything other than the fact. What I'm most proud of is that you all continue to send me emails and continue to engage, and that this really is becoming a voice for the fan. And I appreciate that because that was my goal in setting this up. So keep doing that. Keep liking and subscribing. I, I will always end with saying, please leave a review. It's important to us that you leave a review so we know what's going well and so that we see the feedback. If you want to be a guest, there is starting to come up room in the guest list. So reach out to me, whether by email on fishstripes.com or whether on Twitter, whatever the case is. And as always, go fish. <laughs>